0: Today we'll be in Hosea, chapter eleven. So turn to Hosea chapter eleven, and we'll be looking at verses eight to eleven today. Hosea eleven eight to eleven. But before we get there, I want us to go even further back into history. Uh, there were some situate some cities situated uh, in the plains around the Dead Sea. They were big cities, grand ones. These were. Uh, these were cities, right? If we could say uh, such a word, uh, such, a, uh, such a thing in such an old age, uh, where we might look upon them and say, well, they were little villages. But comparison comparatively to, to what else there was, they were cities. They were big. They were grand. But there, were, there was a problem with these cities. They were uh, what we might call sin cities. And God had determined to destroy them. And so what God does is he actually goes to Abraham, he appears before Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I am going to destroy these cities. And Abraham tries to intercede on behalf of those cities. And I'd say maybe not so much on behalf of those cities, but on behalf of his nephew who lived in one of those cities, his nephew Lot. And God does have mercy, and I say he has mercy on both Abraham and on Lot, Uh, Lot, who's a little bit of a knucklehead and doesn't want to leave the cities, uh, God still rescues him out of it from the coming destruction. And as he and his family race away, fire begins to fall upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And the fullness of God's wrath towards those cities is so great, it's such an impactful moment that these names, right, Sodom and Gomorrah, Come to us even today when when we say that we we know we have images in our mind of what has happened and we see the fingerprints of those cities throughout the scriptures, throughout the pages of the scriptures, even up into the New Testament. We have references back to Sodom and Gomorrah. That is how that is how impactful uh, their destruction was on the history of God's people. And in fact, they are given as examples and even examples to the people of Israel uh, in Moses' uh, own time. And Moses uses them as examples to what God will do to his people should they fail to hold to the covenant. And he knows that they're going to fail to hold to the covenant. So he speaks in uh, this way of saying, when this does happen, because it's going to happen, Here's what people will say. I want us to just briefly think about this in Deuteronomy 29:22 to 26. Deuteronomy 29:22 to 26. Moses is speaking unto the people and he says Deuteronomy 29:22 says, "And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a faraway land, will say, When they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. So just pause there. This sounds really bad, right? This is a bad situation in the land. He goes on, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them and when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Right, So what Moses says is that the, the destruction, the, the devastation, the punishment, the discipline that God will bring upon the land of Israel will be likened unto the wrath of God poured out on the cities of the plain. There will be examples to compare what God has done before, what God is doing now, or in the time of Moses, what God will do later then when the people abandon his covenant. And given this context, we come to our passage today in Hosea 11. It does relate ex- directly to our passage. We'll find that uh, quite quickly. Hosea uses these cities as examples again. And so today what I want us to see in our passage is that God is moved to compassion towards his people, even in the midst of discipline. God is moved with compassion towards his people, even in the midst of discipline. So let us read our passage today. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 8. This is God's word. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like does from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their home declares the Lord All right so remember the context to our passage today where we are in Hosea in Hosea chapter 11 in specific is that God has been declaring an oracle of destruction on the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Right. This is the divided kingdom. Hosea's ministry is to the northern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah has its own problems and it has its own prophets to deal with that. But here we are in the northern kingdom and God promises destruction, right? Just a few verses back here. Uh, verse five of chapter 11 says, They shall not return from the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. Right? God has promised exile. God has promised war, destruction, devastation in the land. God promises an unexodus, right? An un-exodus. They're going to be uh they had an exodus into the land and now they're going to have an exodus out of the land. And then why is all this the case? Well verse 7 tells us, right, my people are bent on turning away from me. And the idea here is something of my people are intending to hang on to to put their hope on false gods and there's even that reference there to the holy one uh, or to the most high which may be a reference to the false god or this reference to them using duplicitous language say, speaking out and saying lord when they mean uh, they they say lord but they uh, don't really mean the lord god yahweh they mean a uh, ball right and they kind of Uh, play both fields and see which God will help them the the most or the first. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on his people in full measure because they're obsessed with their false gods, right? They give lip service to God and he will punish them. But then we come to verse 8. And so let's see this first heart turned in verse 8. Heart turned. And we have here this intense expression of God's exasperation with the people. He must destroy them. Right? He must destroy them. His holiness, God is so holy that he must act in judgment against his people who have broken his covenant. Right? The people are bent on turning away from him. He has to act, but God is also compassionate. You go back to what God declared before Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is who God is, and so we run into God's character. God has to destroy them. And yet God is also compassionate. And so he expresses, right? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you? Right, and do we remember Adma and Zeboim? These are the other cities of the plain that were destroyed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what God is saying, "How how can I treat you? How can I make you? How can I destroy you? How can I burn you to the ground like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities, these other cities? also, just as an aside here, why does Hosea mention Adma and Zeboim? when we know Sodom and Gomorrah, we probably don't know Adma and Zeboim. right we, we don 't go, oh yeah, everyone remembers those stories, right? Sodom and Gomorrah we do, Adma and Zeboim, we don't. Uh, well, one commentator suggests that Hosea sometimes seem seemingly, sometimes just wants to be obscure and elusive. And if we think why that might be, perhaps it is because if we just heard Sodom and Gomorrah, we'd be like, "Oh yeah, I know that." Just move on. If we say Admon well, maybe we'll pull up, pull open our Bibles here and dig a little deeper and say, "What is Admon Zeboim? What are these cities? Where are they?" What happened to them? Uh, So maybe the obscurity is to get the people to do a little bit of work in their scriptures. Maybe if they do a little bit of work in their scriptures, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in, right? They may learn something. Whatever the reason, God declares that he cannot do to Israel what he did to them. He should, listen, he should destroy them. He should utterly wipe them out. There should be scorched earth in the land of Israel. Ah, but God, right, this holy God, this compassionate God, he as of yet cannot, he will not make them like the cities of the plain. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 1.9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah one nine. So Isaiah expresses there, God relented to some extent. God was compassionate to some extent. Devastation and destruction do come, but it will not be complete. It is not full. There is yet compassion, even in the midst of God's discipline. And Hosea says here that his heart is turned or his heart is turned over uh the esv has here my heart recoils within me his mind is changed when we see this word heart it's it's this word mind or heart or it's the inner being and it says his mind is changed and in this we have a challenge does god really change his mind well samuel tells us in the incident with king saul in first samuel 15 verse 29 first samuel 15 verse 29 and also the glory of israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret now one of the difficulties of that passage is that bracketed on both sides before and after it says god regretted making king uh, king saul king we could look to balaam Under the inspiration of God, Balaam, if you remember, he's the prophet uh, that the enemies of Israel try and hire and cajole to curse Israel. But Balaam can only speak what God gives him to speak. And so Balaam speaks this under the inspiration of God in Numbers 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? Or we might look back to James chapter 1, verse 17. James 1, 17, as he writes to the church, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, listen to this, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what are we to make all this? What are we to make here of Hosea saying, uh god saying right god speaking here my heart recoils within me my heart is turned my mind is changed first we have to understand this that this what is being expressed here is not an expression of whim or fancy this is not god going into an ice cream bar telling the person taking his order give me a scoop of vanilla no 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 wait i want chocolate no, 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 wait, I want a strawberry instead. Oh, oh, you know what? You have cookies and cream. Let me do cookies and cream. Oh, forget that. Let me just get with vanilla. All right? We might do that, but that's not what is going on here. God is not subject to whim, to whatever fleeting thought that we might have. That's not how it works with God. We might call this expression, what is expressed here, anthropopathism Uh, we know anthropomorphism which is to say uh, we give god uh, the form of man right so when we say god has a strong arm to save god is spirit he doesn't have an arm So that's an anthropomorphism. We're giving God human characteristics, human form. And when we talk about anthropopathism, we're we're saying we're assigning to God, attributing to God human emotion. Why would we do that? Why would God express himself this way? Well, God condescends to us in our understanding so that we may understand who he is. God speaks sometimes in the scripture in ways that we might not say are um, accurate in a sense of uh, mechanically accurate or engineeringly accurate to who he is, but in ways that we can understand him. So too with his emotion here, right? So we can make sense of what is going on here, and it's spoken to us in a way that we can understand, but it it is an expression for our benefit. We know that God has determined from eternity past all that will happen, all that has happened and will happen, right? Isaiah 46 verses nine through 11, Isaiah 46, nine through 11. Don't take my word for it. Let's go to the scripture and see this, right? Isaiah 46, nine through 11. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Or we could say Psalm 33, verse 11, Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations or Proverbs 19 21. This one's for us. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. We can say that. Yes. Right. We have many plans, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So we should not misunderstand this passage in Hosea to to say we shouldn't interpret it to mean that God Changes on a whim his heart towards his people. We should not think this passage to say that God waits to see what his people will do and then he responds. That's not what is going on here. Because all throughout the scripture, the testimony of the scripture is God knows and has determined and has planned and has counseled all things. From the very beginning of creation, all things have been planned by God. There is nothing that happens, that God has not determined will happen. Now that comes into some difficulties. There are some difficulties that are, arise from that, and we won't get into all this today. But if you have those questions, come talk to me. We can discuss that further. Right? But, but this is the testimony of the scripture. So don't interpret Hosea to say, God is saying, you know what? I changed my mind here. Uh, I, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. No, God is in in this expressing for our sake, not his own sake, our sake, what the people of Israel both deserve and what his internal character will impose. Do you get that? He's saying this is what the people deserve. What do the people deserve? To be Adma and Zeboim. Wiped off the map. Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed. That's what they should be. But his internal character will impose what? Compassion. Steadfast love. God will be faithful to his promise, even if his people are not faithful to their promise. The prophet Malachi is very helpful for us here. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Malachi 3, 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God says, I do not change Therefore you are not consumed. God has made promises, covenant promises, promises of steadfast love unto his people, and he will not consume the whole of the people even if they have been unfaithful to him. And just just to go back there for a moment, for I the Lord do not change. The word Lord there is God's covenant name, Yahweh. He is the great I am. That's the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, Who, who shall I say has sent me to the people? Who shall I say? What is your name? And God said, I am, which means I was, I am, and I will be. Everything that I've determined will happen. What I am unchanging. So God's purpose through Hosea is to tell the people you should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But my compassion grows hot. My compassion is stirred up within me. They should be removed from the earth for their covenant unfaithfulness. And let me just add here, so should we all be removed from the earth. We could go back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. They should have been removed from the earth. God said, on the day that you eat of the fruit that I've told you not to eat, you shall surely die. God had compassion on his creatures. When the peoples of the earth sinned against God in ever greater measure, he should have let the flood waters destroy everybody and everything and be done with it. But God had compassion. And when Israel again and again turned from God, they should have been blotted out like so many nations and peoples before them, right? Have we ever considered, why is it that Israel is still around even to this day? Because God has compassion. Because how many peoples and nations have come before them who are no longer? We don't know about them. There will be many nations that we don't even know about because they've, passed into the obscurity of history, and we know nothing about them. And you, sinner, God should utterly remove you from the earth, because what we all deserve is death. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, right? The wages of sin, what we earn from our sin is death. And for all the evil that we think and say the good and do, for, for all the good that we fail to do, for the hidden sins we think none other know about, for all the obvious and public sins, this is the one thing we deserve from God, wrath, destruction, judgment, eternal hell. And yet, his compassion grows hot. His, his heart cannot allow the utter destruction of all. His holiness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, his compassion, his pity, his truthfulness. For all of these he will not destroy all. God has instead made a way for the atonement of our sins. God has given his son Jesus as the payment for the penalty of the sins of his people. God's righteous wrath is not forgotten but it's satisfied in the sacrifice of christ and romans 10 9 through 13 tells us romans 10 9 through 13 because if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you trust god you can be forgiven of your sins you will find in god compassion warm and tender compassion god will not destroy all but he will destroy all who fail to turn to him in faith he will destroy all those who are not saved by grace through faith paul describes the situation this way in romans chapter 9 verses 22 to 26 romans 9 22 to 26 And I really hesitated this week just to look at those verses. I want to look at the whole of Romans 9, but maybe we'll get there one day. Romans 9, though, starting in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. There are those who are prepared to make known the power of God, the awesomeness of his wrath, the fullness of his holiness. There are those prepared for destruction. And there are those who, in contrast, will receive glory. There are those whom God has called from Jew and Gentile alike. There are those who were not God's people, whom he makes his people, sons of the living God. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, though none deserve mercy. So let's put a point in it there to say If you think that you're hot stuff because you're a vessel of mercy, you fail to understand what mercy is. There is no pride in being the people of God. There is just the outpouring of thanksgiving and praise to a God who would have mercy on those who don't deserve it. And so too for the people of Israel here, right? They don't deserve compassion they deserve destruction. And yet God says, my compassion has grown hot. I can't do with you like I did to the cities of the plain. Right? And the amazing thing here that Hosea is ex- is expressing of, of the name of God is that he can't make them like the cities of the plain. Instead, his wrath will abate. And so we'll see that next in verse 9, wrath abated, wrath abated. Abated in verse nine. God says, I will not execute my burning anger, or my fierce anger, the fierceness of the wrath and anger of God will be softened. He won't bring complete and utter destruction to the people of the northern kingdom. And this is not to say. Right. So what God is not saying here is that he is not going to discipline his people. What God is not saying here is that God will not visit upon the peoples what he has thus far promised in the book of Hosea. Right, So this is not God saying, I'm not going to pour out my wrath. But the fierceness of it, the quality of the wrath is different, for it will not be utter destruction. Right, He says, I'm not going to again destroy Ephraim. Uh, Puritan Matthew Poole gives this simile. Of this, uh, I will not again destroy Ephraim. I won't execute my fierce anger. Uh, Matthew Poole writes, I will not do as men who, having beat down an enemy and wounded him, do return again to see whether he breathed and to make an end of him. Or conquerors that plunder the conquered city, carry away the wealth of it, and after some time return to burn it, God will not do so. God will not visit again to snuff out his people. For he is God and not a man. But that's what we see here in this verse, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And here we must remark, God is not like us. And that may sound simple. You may think, well, that's stupid of you to say, Dale. Everyone knows God is not like us. But how we must learn this truth. God is not like like us he is holy he is perfect he is eternal he exists independently of everything whereas we are dependent on him in everything he never tires he never changes he needs nothing he doesn't need us but we desperately need him what he says he does for he knows all things and he can make any desire of his come to pass because his power is infinite What he says he means. He always speaks truth. God is not like you. God tells his people, those who are still his in the northern kingdom of Israel, that he is not like them. God is not a man like them. He is not like their fellow citizens. He doesn't waver in purpose or truth. He is steadfast. He is the holy one in their midst. Ought the people of God ever take comfort in this? He is the holy one. So, a shape of this, to understand what is going on here, to help us understand it better, I want us to look at 1 John 1 9. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right, what a verse. What a verse of comfort and assurance unto us. The Apostle John writes to the church, Right? If we confess our sins, if we tell the truth of them, what does it mean to confess? To tell the truth of them before God. When we confess our sins, we tell the truth. Right, We didn't have an affair, we committed adultery. We didn't just say a little white lie, we lied. We didn't tell the truth. We tell the truth, the whole truth about our sins. And it says here that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he forgives our sins and he cleanses us from them. That we may be holy before him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, if you've ever remarked upon it, but why faithful and just? Why is God faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Why, why wouldn't we say God is merciful and gracious? God is loving to forgive us our sins. Well, we could go. God is faithful because he has promised to forgive our sins to those who come to him in faith. Two passages for this. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Second passage: Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so God has given us this; has has written in His Word these things, so that we may know. That he is faithful to forgive sins if we confess them. God is faithful. The second aspect there is why do we say God is just? So we, we get faithful now, but why is he just? Why can't we say God is faithful and gracious to forgive our sins? God is just, and this is so important. God is just because if Christ Jesus has paid for our sins, if Christ Jesus has made atonement for our sins, paid the penalty of it in full, then it would be unjust of God to make us pay it as well. If he accepts Christ's sacrifice, then the sin is paid in full, and there no longer remains a need for another sacrifice to apply this to what we're considering in Hosea. right? So God is faithful, God is just, and now let's apply it back to Hosea. This idea of who God is, why is this so important that we understand who God is? Because God is the Holy One, and He can never undo what He has promised to do. If God has promised the forgiveness of our sins, if we confess them truly before him, then we have the forgiveness of our sins always. We waver. So again, why is this important? We understand who God is, that God is not a man because we waver, we vacillate, we say one thing and mean another, or we say one thing and do another. We profess love for one another. And then as time passes, maybe that love wanes. Maybe it's proven false. Our love is changed and changeable. Even in this, right? So that's a negative way to look at it. But even in this, here's a positive way we might say our love changes. Our love changes, it grows. Right? We, we are married to someone and we love them more and more as the day passes. God willing that that is the trajectory of our marriage. We love them more. God doesn't love more or less. God loves. He's not man. His love doesn't waver. To say it once more, that it may sink in ever deeper in our minds and our hearts. God is not like us. He is the Holy One. Now here we have to comment about the the last phrase of verse 9. The ESV translates it, and I will not come in wrath. You may have a a footnote here that says, or I will not come into the city. And that's how the King James Version renders this phrase, and I will not enter into the city. And that's probably the better translation. And what's going on here? Remember the context of what Hosea is given. What is the imagery he is using? He's using the imagery of the the story, the situation, the circumstance of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember in the story, God sends his angels into the city. And as they go into the city, what do they witness? Heinous evil, great evil. They witness the sins of the city. And so what happens as a result? The angels report to God and God says, I have to destroy that city. I have to make an end of them. My holiness demands it. And so we come back to Hosea and we say, well, well, what does this mean? God says, I'm the holy one in your midst. And if he is holy and he enters into the city, he will have to destroy them. So what we're seeing here, what, what this means is that Hosea is telling us, We see a mercy of God here. God's not going to enter into their midst in the same way that he did into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to withhold doing that so that he doesn't have to destroy them utterly. So, God's wrath is abating. He won't enter into the city to see their sin. But what's more is that God promises to the people, that they will be returned. And so let's see that next in verses 10 and 11. People returned. People returned. The scripture reads, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and, their, and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes declares the Lord. So first, let's just note here, where will the people be in exile? And so this, again, nothing should we take away from this passage to say that God is not going to do what he's going to promise. It won't be to the extent that they deserve. He will be compassionate and merciful yet towards them, but they will be exiled. They'll be in Egypt. They'll be in Assyria. But he's going to roar like a lion. He's going to call them like a fierce lion. The lion of Judah will roar and his people come back to him. They will come from the east and from the west. They will come trembling. And this word trembling probably serves a double meaning here. It can mean something like the fear, uh, trembling fear, trembling in fear, right? Scared, knees knocking together. And you could imagine that if you heard... I don't know about you, but if you're out in the wilderness and you hear a lion roar, I'd say that caused your knees to knock together a little bit. Haven't had that happen, Lord willing, never will. But right, we can understand a trembling fear. We can understand the reverence that the people may have for the Lord as he calls them to himself. But it can also mean this word trembling can also carry with the connotations of speed, of fastness. Quickness can mean to hurry. And if you look at verse 11 here, we see this sense too, right? They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Uh, One thing we would say about birds is they tend to be pretty quick, right? They go quick. Uh, They're not just ambling by. They're going quick. And God says he will call them from every corner of the earth and they'll come quick. Also note, what do birds do? They fly they fly over impediments. It might take us a long time to go up and down a hill, but not so for a bird all right we We use that colloquialism right as the crow flies it's a hundred feet as the crow flies, but it's ten miles as you have to go around all the the cliff and crag and rock and all this rest all the rest right. So they're going to be quick. God will call. He will determine when his people return to the land and they will return to the land. Right. He says, I will return them to their homes and nothing can stop their coming. We know this to be the case in the history of the people. We know that the people returned to the land after exile, not in the same way they went out, never to the glory of the uh, the time of, say, King David or King Solomon, but they do return, and even though there were enemies who stood in their way, God does not let these impediments stand between him and his people. We could look at this, the book of Esther, for instance, and see how an evil man wants to make an end of all the, the people, the Jewish people, and God uh, turns that situation around real quick. We could look at the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, the books, uh, these books, and see how God's people... Uh, survived evil men who wanted to thwart their mission, uh, their call to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. These impediments do not stop the people of God, but God calls his people to himself. God is faithful to his people always. Because remember, he is God, not man. He doesn't lie like a man does. He doesn't change his mind like a son of man does. God is not like us. And he gives this comfort unto the people, right? God is speaking through the prophet Hosea to his people, to those who are his, that even though they may suffer greatly, even though they may go off into exile, that he has not forgotten them. He is compassionate towards them. They should receive this comfort. God has not done with his people. His promises and purposes remain the same, though years may pass. By the way, that's a word for us today. Christ has been gone, we would say, from the earth for some 2,000 years. It may feel like sometimes that the church has to suffer greatly, that God's people do indeed suffer greatly, waiting for Christ to return. But know this, beloved, Christ will return. He will gather you to his side, that where he is, you may be with him forever. But in the meantime, for the people of Hosea, in Hosea's time, there is destruction. Not utter destruction, but hardship yet. God is moved with compassion towards his people, and even when God disciplines his people, there is yet compassion in it. And we may suffer much because of our sin, not as punishment, if you're in Christ, right? Not as punishment, but as discipline. Peter writes to the church about suffering this way in 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 18. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. By the way, these are verses that we, uh, I, we, don't, we don't see them in the Christian bookstores, on the coffee mugs and in uh, you know, little keychains and stuff. But uh, maybe we ought. Keep it before us. 1 Peter four seventeen and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinner? Our God is the Holy One, brothers and sisters. He is the Holy One in our midst. And should we think that He will deal lightly with sin, We know, if indeed we are in Christ, what the terrible price is for sin. And should we be cavalier about it in our own lives? God is not. Christian, you may feel pressed to the end of yourself. You may feel as though you have no strength left. Understand this. God will refine you in the plains of suffering and he will sanctify you in the valleys of the shadow of death. Understand this, his grace is sufficient. Know that he is conforming you to the image of his son. Remember that his purpose for you, beloved, is this, your glory, your glorification. Do not waver, but hold to the one who never wavers. Look unto Jesus Christ, your Savior. God brought his people Israel through great hardship. There were many who suffered greatly in the days of Hosea, and not just those who had turned from God, right? Those who were God's people, those who really understood. Hosea himself undoubtedly suffered. But God was faithful to his people. He did not utterly destroy them. Indeed, he could not. And understand that the God who roared as a lion to call his people to himself is the same God who calls his people today, The Lion of Judah, Jesus the Christ, roars, calling his people to himself. He gathers his people from every corner of this earth. And there is coming a day, again, this blessed day, when he will gather us to his side forevermore. Praise God for his compassion towards us always, even in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our discipline. Some of you need to hear this warning, though. God's compassion is not a license for you to sin. God's grace is not for the increase of your sin. Paul writes as such in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? But if you still live in sin, if that's your first and only desire, Understand that even though you may profess to believe in Christ, your desire speaks the truth. And for you, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ Jesus. For if you do not, if you do not, if this thing of Christianity is all about getting into heaven and uh, no worries about anything else in our lives, uh, we don't really have to pay attention to what God tells us he's going to forgive us anyways if that's your if that's your understanding if that's your intention understand this there will be no compassion for you and instead you will only find his wrath first peter 4 17 to 18 again it says for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god and if the righteous is scarcely saved What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If God's people suffer such, the Apostle Peter asks, what about those who don't obey? What about those who are workers of lawlessness, as Jesus says in Matthew 7? What shall become of those who do not heed the good news about Christ Jesus? God's compassion is only for his people. He may have mercy on you for a time, But understand that there is a day coming when you will stand before the creator and give an account for your life and no amount of haggling of saying, well, I did this or that will be enough to keep you from the devastation of hell because you can't earn your way into heaven. You can't buy your way. You can't do enough good. The good you do, if it could be called such, the good you do is merely your duty. It's what you're supposed to do already. It's nothing special. So how can you use a debarter for your soul? You can't. Friend, your only hope of eternal life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So confess your sins. Confess the truth about Jesus. Pray in this moment to ask God to save you. Ask him to have mercy on you. To show him your to show you his grace towards you in Christ. Plead with him for his grace. Because he's not stingy. He's not like us. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a word it is that you have given unto your people through the prophet Hosea. O Father, and what a word it is that you give unto us this day. Father, help us to know who you are. Lord, Lord, that we may understand that you are not like us. God, impress upon us the truth of your word this morning. Oh, that we would understand. Oh, that we would know you, O God. That we would desire you as you are as you reveal yourself unto us, not as we design. Oh, Father, we confess how quick it is we are to design in our own minds to think of you as we want to, as we desire it, as fits our tempers. But Lord God, you are God and you are not like us. Your understanding, your wisdom is greater than all the wisdom of men. Your holiness is holy, holy, holy. And God, we thank you. Indeed, that you do condescend to us. That you speak in ways that we can understand you. For you desire to be known. You desire to be glorified. You desire to be praised. You desire to be worshipped. For that is fitting. And oh Lord God if we understood your perfections. If we knew your glory. What else would we do? But glory in you. Worship you. Praise you. Sing thanksgiving unto you evermore. Father, let us know you. Reveal yourself unto us. May your word drive deep into us. O Father, may we know you and your Son. May we know the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. that we would glorify you, that we would be changed, transformed. O Lord, have mercy. Show grace. Let us know your steadfast love towards us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.